0: Yo, gynostemma tea. <laughs> it's <a cry> now. <laughs> Is this tea? It's kind of like green tea, but what, what did you call it? Dinosaur tea? Gynostemma.
1: Oh, gynostemma,
0: mm-hmm. not dinosaur. Yeah, I'm still trying to understand this, but basically, it's like this ancient Chinese way of making tea, where they take all of these leaves and brew them down into almost a syrup, and they mix mm-hmm. them. And then they take that and put it into tea bags, and then you can make tea out of it. There's no caffeine. There's no sugar. Nothing added. It. It's just it's just like a green tea, but it's a super green tea because it's all these leaves, all mm. these different leaves. It's like a claim to be a longevity tea. I like it because it tastes good, mm. and since I don't drink caffeine, I feel like I do get a little bit of energy from it. A little bit of hippity hoppity, bippity boppity. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Sure. But uh, yeah,
1: hey, dinosaur tea. <laughs> In a store near you.
0: <laughs> hey all I'm Keith. Yo, and I'm Rodney, and this is the More In Common Podcast. Welcome. This is a place for genuine, authentic conversation, where we explore the fact that we indeed have more in common than that which divides us. And you can find us at
1: moreincommonpod.com. All things there. Everything you need to know about us. Um, if you can distinguish our voices, that is. Uh, so I just had a the I missed the WWW that time. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want to do it, um, but I do want to do this and read a re- our, our, our iTunes review um, of from the week. All eighty six, all eighty six, honest and thought provoking. Rodney and Keith are fun, thought provoking hosts that address important issues head on through open and honest conversations. Aside from hosting a multitude of interesting guests, they share feedback to help individuals navigate difficult conversations both internally and externally. Hmm. Thank you very much for that, ALL. People do listen
0: to our feedback. I know. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Uh, all 86. That's what I'm going to call you. (laughs) That's so good. Not all 85,
1: all 86. Um, So let's go back. Matt McCabe, what did you take away
0: from that conversation? Different ways to start a business, you know, a different way to be an entrepreneur. Like, So him and his three partners, he was the one that decided or they decided that he would be the one to step away from his full-time job first. And so Mm -hmm. he was running Ultimatum full-time while his partners were working full-time in their day jobs and then helping... And so, like, there's just so many different ways to do it. And, it, you know, you hear so many, there's just so many people that are like, you got to do this and you got to do that. And it's like, yeah. nah, you ain't got to do nothing. Like, figure out what works for you. Yeah. So that's what it hit. That's what it hit for me. What about you? It actually speaks a lot
1: to what took for me is just radical truth and how it is about the difference between your truth and facts and data and being open to the truth of someone else and their feelings as a data point. Right. Like, and and just like in what you just discussed, like everybody's going to have a different way of doing it, right? Like facts and data are one thing, but truth isn't necessarily the same for everybody. And the way he frames that up and talks about that, I just thought it was it it, it really something that I've been thinking about. Yeah. That being but said, now that's a conversation for later. Today
0: we have we have JJ, Coach JJ was sixty five pounds overweight, smoking two packs a day, and working. 100-plus hours per week. He was drinking too much, and he didn't have any kind of balance in his life. Then Coach JJ started to work with veteran life coach Lori Anderson, and his entire life and perspective changed. He lost over 70 pounds in just eight months, started eating well, sleeping, and reducing stress, mostly through movement. Uh, His favorite thing to do was run. Incidentally, it's my least favorite thing to do. The, that obviously had huge positive effects on every aspect of his life, changing how he approached life, career, family, and balance overall. He's currently a certified life coach, or a CLC, pursuing his dream to grow the nonprofit De- Depression to Extinction, aimed to help those suffering from depression and anxiety disorders. It offers anyone suffering from depression or anxiety a place to connect and begin the holistic approach to dealing with these debilitating disorders. What do we get into, Keith? Gosh, we, I mean, this is a, an energetic
1: conversation and we get into a lot when we get into the check-in process at D2E. We talk about the uh, depression to extinction origin. We talk about suicide awareness, um, his work with sub- through substance abuse, connection, shame, his journey. Uh, I mean, it's just a packed conversation that has a lot of energy and it's a lot of fun. What'd mm-hmm. you take away? What What struck you most about it?
0: The energy is definitely one. I mean, he's an intense guy. Like he's just he's kind of like full speed. And along with that, the generosity of time. Like I could tell, we could. Well, I could tell he had a lot going on. He had calls and p- things coming in, but he focused on the conversation. He gave us everything, or at least it felt like he gave us everything. And that that was uh, that was really really uh, cool. What about you? Um,
1: I the the whole frame of how he's intentionally worked to be more empathetic. Um I just think that's something like it is it is a great testimonial story of its possibility and I think I want I I just hone in on that. Uh that that was that was a big thing. So JJ's awesome. We're super excited. Let's go.
0: There you go.
2: To, to write my emotions and here's a great exercise for anyone who's listening when you're having a really hard time kind of getting your words out if you're right handed take your pen put it in your left hand and time yourself for five minutes and try to write whatever you're thinking because what happens is you're going to use a different part of your brain you're crossing over and it really gets I mean, it really gets you focused those there's, there's transmitters are just firing like whoa, whoa, whoa I have to write this perfect don't worry about whether you can read it or not it's a great exercise when you're journaling. If you're stuck, you just don't know what to write or, or what you're writing. You might feel a little yeah about. Switch it to your left hand or if you're left-handed. Switch it to your right hand if you're ambidextrous. I don't know what to tell you. Right with your toes. But, <laughs> but take your foot. But, <laughs> but switch. But switch. You know, switch it up and and. and yourself. Be empathetic. Sit there with them. Listen. We don't do enough active listening in this world, right? So what's the biggest issue between kids and adults right now? They want to be heard. We want to be listened to. This check-in process bridges that gap. This formula creates a space where everyone can have what they want. And so empathy for me is this idea of like, as soon as it gets so bad, I want to get up. Just try to stay for 30 seconds longer. You don't have to take it on. You don't have to, you don't have to, it's not yours. Don't let your ego get in the way of it because at the end of the day, you have no idea that sitting in that moment with that person, how that could change their life forever.
0: Okay, welcome back. We are here with Jeff Jackson, a.k.a. JJ, a.k.a. Coach JJ, a.k.a. possibly other things. JJ, thanks <laughs> for joining us.
2: Yeah, man, thanks for having me on.
0: Man. Uh, so I want to jump right in. When we started talking, you said that your everything that you coach and everything you believe is all being tested right now. What does that mean?
2: Uh, let's just say I've had uh, probably the hardest six weeks of my life. I've had a, a close uh, friend and family member... Uh, suffering from anxiety and depression, who's had to seek treatment. Um, I have a, a close friend since a childhood friend since I can remember. I'm talking AYS soccer level. And um, called me to let me know that uh, he was going to end his life and had a gun in his hand. And three hours later, we got him the help he needed, and we're back on a more positive path. My 13 year old son came to us uh, over spring break last week, week and a half ago, and shared that one of his classmates had attempted suicide. And he was one of very few people to know about it um, and was basically told, don't talk about it. And no one actually reached out to talk to him about it. Um, we're in the middle of a potential merger with an amazing other nonprofit. Uh, who brings mindfulness to 3,100 schools across the country and could, with our emotional awareness, the Real Formula and the check-in process we created uh, and their mindfulness platform, we could just impact significant change. Um, And, uh, yeah, I've gotten my third cold in a year, which I don't think I've had three colds in a year to begin with. I'm also training for a Guinness World Record attempt to be the first person to run 50 ultra marathons in all 50 states in 50 straight days uh, to raise awareness around the importance of emotional awareness and to end the stigma that surrounds depression and anxiety disorder. And as a training run, we have our first annual event called the Be Real 24-Hour Challenge on May 4th to help celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month. And uh, we have people from five continents, I'm sorry, three continents, five countries and all over the United States going out and running one mile, 100 miles, 24 hours, two hours to just uh, help us raise awareness. Because the stigma around mental illness, specifically in in my journey, depression and and social anxiety disorder is real Um, and and it's messy. And it's uh, it's time for people to say, fuck this. It's time to step up and and take a stand and and push back against um the stereotypes uh, that that have you know haunted my generation at least I'm 40 almost 48 years old and there was no being afraid being scared you're a pussy there was no sadness stop being a baby mm-hmm. um and and that's all bullshit it's toxic masculinity that I just won't stand for anymore
0: wow we
1: talk- yeah, there's <laughs> like, a lot to unpack. I, I, I can see, see getting sick. I, I can see a little yeah. stress
0: involved in the last few weeks, um, possibly messing with the immune system. Um, how how yeah. do
1: you manage like the, the stress, the anxiety? Because you seem like a guy who cares a lot about helping, obviously helping other people. But when other people are in distress, do you take that personally?
2: Uh, yeah, I do. Um, it's funny. I I did uh, a check-in with my co-founder, Luke Frazier, um, today for the first time in like a week. And this check-in process is, is you know, you go through your 10 emotions, you rate them on a scale from 1 to 10, one not feeling it, and really feeling it anything in between. And then you just have a little space to share whatever else is going on in your story. We we really believe that your story, my story, everybody's story matters, and we always end with a positive affirmation statement, we encourage an "I am" statement. I am strong. I am capable. I am worthy. Keeps us in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And I haven't done that, right? So I, I'm out here advocating and fighting for this, this, this belief that it's so important for self care. Uh, it's so important to to reach out and connect with others and to get out and move and to practice mindfulness, whether it's meditation or breathing, um, whether it's just sitting and, and just staring at a tree or going. A couple of weeks ago, we were in Sanibel, Florida, and I just went. And for the first time ever, I attempted to do nothing for four hours. I went to a coffee shop. I had my notebook and I just wrote what I saw, mm. what I felt. Um, there's not enough of that going on. And I haven't either. I haven't created the time or I haven't felt. Um, uh, valued enough, uh, I, you know, I, I I suffer from the shame monster. Shame's a big one for me. And so there's this constant, I'm not enough. You know, I don't need help. I can help everybody else. It's just Batman, right? It's this dark night complex where I'm Bruce Wayne during the day, and, and at night I, I go and fight social injustice. And, and uh, no, you know what? I, sometimes I need to be lifted up, too.
0: How have um, you... Sorry, quick question. So you mentioned a friend saying he's ready to commit suicide I had a gun in his hand. I've only had one situation where I had a friend reach out and it wasn't, they weren't that far along and I felt extremely unprepared for that conversation. Um, Other than I was her friend and I had a rapport. So obviously she was reaching out. So it was like there was a space for a conversation. I felt I did not know what to say or what to do. It ended up positively and she's she's still with us. But like, how do you manage that situation or how, like, as you talk about depression and anxiety and like these situations, suicide is a huge, huge thing. Like, how do you how do you think about that? And then, do, do you coach or tell other people to think about those
2: situations? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of giving no advice. I, I share my experiences. Mm. I think that's really a valuable way of, of offering a, a way for people to process what's best for them in that particular situation. I also have uh, a superpower. It's um, called ADHD. And for years, they wanted to drug me and, and keep me down from that, that ability to process information at a very rapid pace and to then act quickly. And I have a, my 13-year-old son also has ADHD. And, and I had a close friend share with me um, that, uh, that that wasn't a hindrance, but rather a superpower. And I showed that with my son. And he and I, you know, we kind of joke now. And that's sort of our superhero complex is that we have this awesome ability. It's also a curse. Because you can also be processing information so quickly that you can't zone in on something. Sure. Um, okay. in, in those types of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in triage situations, I would say I excel Um. In, in in that I can just get to the next right thing. And then once we get to that next right thing, I can get to the next right thing. And then once we get to that next right thing, I can get to the next right thing. I did have the uh, the, the privilege of going through suicide prevention training. Um, And I will tell you, it kicked into overdrive for me. Um, When I realized there was ability, intent, plan, I knew that it was out of my hands. And so I had to keep this person who who I cared for, um, I had to keep this person talking and eventually let them know I needed help. I couldn't do it by myself. And it took a couple of tries, and eventually we were able to say, yep, let's get some additional people on here who are trained. To do this, and it was um I'm a whiteboard guy, so like as this is going, I'm not even exaggerating. I have a big uh, 2,000 square foot shop. I've got my gym in there, and we've got you know ducks and you know I've got a workspace in there, and I just grabbed a whiteboard and I just started whiteboarding things as they were coming up, so we could go back to them. And um, you know the, the number one goal for me was to just create a safe space, right? If I could create a safe space, first and foremost, we could keep things. Idol. um and we we were able to do that uh, he is familiar with the check-in process so i was able to use the check-in as sort of a grounding tool at that moment and sure everything was you know ten in anger and ten in like everything was super high it was escalated but we also were able to come back with the with the suicide prevention specialist on the line we were able to come back and talk about that high anger and that low joy and and that sort of weird relationship with love. And when the, when this whole crisis was over and we knew that he was safe, we knew that everything was moving forward, uh, at least for the next, you know, 24 hours, um, the the gentleman on the phone said, he goes, what is that thing you did with him? And I said, it's, it's our core, you know, solution that we offer to our community. It's called a check-in process. And I went through it with him and he was like literally wanting us to come out and train their staff here in Austin on how to do that. So it's pretty cool
1: so to to kind of simplify a little bit for a layman who necessarily isn't trained, who isn't tapped in to depression to extinction depression to extinction yet, and who really has like in Rodney's situation, never really come across this before it it seems to me like first you listen, listen first and don't give advice, um, assess ability intent. And do they have a plan to do it? And ultimately, just keep asking questions, talk through things, and get someone else on the phone who is who is trained and certified to actually manage this type of situation as probably the best action that if someone called me tomorrow, I could easily just say, okay, just stay focused because I'm not trained for this and I need to make sure that I have somebody trained to do this on the phone, but I got to get to that point. Am I oversimplifying it, or is that is that fair?
2: No, I mean, from my experience, that's spot on. And, and what was valuable to have someone else trained in this was by the time we were able to, because I couldn't quite locate where he was at, mm. their job was to triangulate his situation, and they were able to get the police there. That wasn't my job. In fact, when the police got there, he's, he got pissed. He's like, fuck, you called the cops on me. And I'm like, I, I didn't call the cops on you. What's going on? Because at this point, I wasn't involved. You weren't involved in, the in that. Prevention. Yeah. The prevention line was. What was great is that I was able to maintain my relationship with him. And so when 35, 40 minutes later, we stayed on the phone the whole time. And when he came back, he's like, you sold me out. You, you called the cops. And I said, I swear I didn't call the cops. And the guy on the line said, no, I did. It was my job. You had intent. You had ability. You had cause. You had plans. And then it turned to this. You guys didn't hang up. And it was this, all of a sudden, this amazing, for, for lack of a better word, in a stressful situation, this amazing, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. You, didn't, you didn't leave me. You didn't, you didn't give up on me. And uh, we just took it one step at a time from there and came up with the next right steps.
0: You said that you don't give advice. You like to share your advice. Or you like to share your experience. No advice, share experience. Where did that come from?
2: uh yeah we learned some of that in, in program right so I went to a 12-step program and you know all, all of my my AA brothers and sisters out there love that I say this I make up that they love that I say this and they they probably hate that I say this but like for me the 12-step program got me sober but it didn't keep me sober mm-hmm. in other words I was able to say hey yeah I've got a problem whether I'm a hardcore alcoholic or a hardcore druggie or I just have a horrible relationship with alcohol and drugs it got me sober but the the challenge I had was I needed something deeper. I needed something closer. And there was just never a space in, in those meetings for me to, to talk about how I was really feeling. Mm-hmm. Listen, typically when you're dealing with alcoholism, and this is just my experience from people I've I've met in, in my journey, it's just it's just the the end result of, of a deeper issue, right? So it oftentimes is, is an early trauma uh, that happens to us as as small kids, even as young adults, and um if we don't deal with the trauma, if we don't create a space and a way to start talking about how we're feeling and what's really showing up for us, um, it, just, it just continues to just spin out of control. And that was my experience.
1: It's a good um, spin to one of my questions that I had that I is at your mission, like at, at Depression to Extinction, you have the mission uh, committed to changing the way people communicate with their emotions themselves and others. What does that mean? from your perspective? like What type of change are you referring to? I think you have kind of touched on it, but I'm, I want to kind of attack it straight on.
2: So this idea of self-identifying. And so when you go through the check-in process, when you have to think about the word anger or the emotion anger, you automatically have to stop. You have to process. And our brains can only process one emotion at a time. You can't feel anger and love at the exact same moment. You can go between a nanosecond but like, you can't feel them at the same moment. So when I'm thinking about anger in that moment, I can just pause and go, oh yeah, I'm feeling a little anger right now. And you might be able to talk about what that anger is. And then this idea of like connecting with others. So yeah. So I think, you know, the second piece of like, you know, connecting or communicating with others is this opportunity to just create this space, right. To genuinely care about someone else. Like my year this year is about empathy. I'm, practicing empathy, I'm studying empathy. I wasn't taught empathy. Um I'm finding that I'm able to be more empathetic with men than women, which is completely backwards. Um but but it's something I've been working hard towards. Um so what if we can create this space by being again, be able to connect and communicate with ourselves and with others. Um and then you know kind of the the, the first real one quick, is real quick know, sorry,
0: before you go too far into yeah, yeah. uh, empathy. Have you looked at much empathy versus, or the difference between empathy and compassion? Have you looked at that much so, when you're studying empathy?
2: So there's a lot of studies about the difference between empathy and compassion. Yeah. Um, in fact, Harvard did a study 2005 2006. Um, there, it's interesting how they cross, right? So they right. have all these intersections. Um, I'm not good at either, so it's been really interesting for me to focus on empathy this year. Mm-hmm. I I Completely confused empathy with sympathy. Feeling sorry for someone mm. versus sitting in the shit with that person that you care about or that person you're available to in that moment and just going, man, I see you. I feel you. How That how, makes sense.
0: Do you think that's hard for you because you mentioned earlier, you mentioned the, the two words, toxic and masculinity, and just kind of the upbringing, like the way you were brought up, like, oh, that's soft. Oh, you're a pussy. Oh, you're like if you do those. If you you say I feel you, I see you. You're seen as X Y Z Q P all that stuff. Is that
2: hundred percent? Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about. It. I mean, there's an entire generation, right, of of us in our late thirties and forties that have gone through this sort of phase. This machismo, this, this you know, it's macho ness, right? And it's this idea of like you got to be the tough man. You got to earn the income and you know, listen, my wife and I are walking down the street and someone comes up and tries to, to assault us. Yeah, that's when that masculinity, that's when that, that difference between feminine and masculine, I think, comes into strength. But if I'm trying to live my daily life with my person, my wife, my loved one, whoever it might be, and I'm trying to be macho all the time, what am I missing? What am I leaving on the table in terms of true connection, Right. And so my hope and desire is to be able to go, man, I see you right now. I I see you're in pain. I see that you're feeling fear. I see that you're, 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 you're dealing with the worry bullies as we call them.
1: It's um, interesting in that, in that space, like I just had a conversation about um, with a relative, an older relative who mentioned, I'm not, I I don't understand this bullying because I was taught that, you know, to defend myself and know it was like and i started just thinking about it and yeah it's not it, part of it is like i have to defend myself because i'm a man right like i if if someone's being a bully someone's being brash and angry and irritable towards me because they have something going on in their life why do i need to resort to any kind of response in a physical way just because i'm a man or it why? Why is the the issue just not the initial respon or initial action itself, right? Like, and well, there's this expectation to to defend oneself, especially when you're a man. And I think it goes that deep in the act of physical interaction, regardless of you know. And I I think that contributes a lot to this this toxic masculinity and this need and to for bullying today, stand up. Right.
0: I think it's a little, little different than. No, i'm talking about the
1: response to bullying right like i'm a i'm a guy i should be or at least to jj's point about age and oh the like this individual was talking about well i was taught to defend myself but why should you be taught to defend yourself like why do you have to do that right like, that that shift we
2: have we have we have grown up in a world of violence video games we go we go from what i played when i was growing up on an atari which was (laughs) Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and Pong Pong. and all this. Yeah, right? Right. To first-person shooters, to graphics that look so real that you can get in a car, you can steal it, you can go get your boys and shoot people up and bang a prostitute on a video game, and that's part of what they're selling. Right. That's toxic. That's toxic masculinity right there. The perfect example.
1: How do you feel about that Gillette commercial that came out?
0: Did you ever see it?
2: No, I, I listen. I heard all about that commercial. Yeah, it's worth. A, I I just
0: I, it, I think it's worth a view
2: because I
1: think I think yeah. they contribute to the 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 underlying cause of some of these things is boys will be boys, right? Like right. letting them beat up on each other when one really wants nothing to do with it, but you know the other one's right. being allowed to get away with it because boys will be boys is one of the things. And
0: and they, they well they started off of by calling themselves out by like is that the best a man can get? like the dude getting the shave and then the hot woman walking up and like giving him a kiss and like they right. they sh- straight up put themselves on blast first like oh we, we we've we definitely fed into this and oh yeah and then went into examples of like it, it so then there's the what i was trying to say to you keith is i think and and maybe there's not a difference but like physical and verbal bullying like if somebody's bullying me online there's that there's uh, somebody's calling me names and saying things like, I can say I honor you. Somebody's punching me in the face and I say I honor you. I mean, I could. Um, there's there's always turning another cheek. How does that look? like? And then how do we teach that? Or how do we teach um, what there is? That's, for me growing up, that's where I was taught like...
2: Well, this is where I'm not going to be a big fan. I'm, I'm probably going to lose some of your fan base here. So, yeah, sometimes you're going to get punched in the face. Yep. And sometimes you might have to punch somebody that's back totally. to defend yourself. And at that moment it only needs one punch. I've seen guys and, and I grew up in a different time, but I saw guys beat other guys to a fucking pulp.
0: Which is sick. I mean it's like, like why no
2: like what's what is the point? When the guy's done, it's done. Right. right? And I can tell you I had my share fair my fair share of fights, and here's the thing. Win, lose, or draw, I felt like shit. Right. Every it never single ended time. well. Never ended well. In fact, I would say some of the shame that I've held on to for so many years is from the verbal and some physical altercations I had in high school. I mean just looking back and going, why? Well, what was the freaking point? To show off for, for a girl? Show my buddies I was cool? How many of those guys do I still talk to? Hero. How many of those women, young girls are still in my life? None. At at this moment in time, it's easy to look back, right? And say, Wow, I wish I wouldn't have done that. But I couldn't even have done that three years ago had I not started connecting with myself and my emotions, and that helped me to start connecting with others in a, in a more meaningful way.
0: You've said and shame I- quite a few times. What does shame mean? Keith and I were actually talking about this earlier this week, so I'm very, yeah. very keyed in on shame right now.
2: So so we wrote a book, um, and it's about the 10 core emotions and about the check-in process, um, and I wrote the I wrote the chapter on shame, and so... Shame and guilt, right? So I always say they look alike, not the same. Have a place at the table with all of our emotions. Um, I don't believe that feelings are good or bad. I think some are more difficult, but I don't think they're good or bad. So I don't think shame is a bad feeling. I did for a long time. Shame for me is this constant reminder of not enough. So when I think of shame, a lot of times words, I should have kind of come into that equation. And as soon as I say I should have, A lot of the time, I'm knowing that shame is showing up for me. And then for me, to hold on to other people's shame, my biological father who I never met, why am I holding on to this man's shame? This man left before I was born. He never wanted to be a part of my life. And yet, for years, I was holding on to that pain. Mm -hmm. And so shame and pain, when we go through these check-in check-in processes, you see all these correlations, shame and pain, shame and fear, for men, often are connected. Anger and guilt often connected mm-hmm. and so a lot of times when i when i see shame showing up in my life there's a lot of pain around that for me as well both emotional and spiritual sadness
0: um so you said should sorry keith i'm gonna say one more uh we recently uh somebody who were hoping to get on the podcast later this year she said that should is a cognitive what is it a cognitive distortion a coach told her that, like that. um like in the, i think one of her olympic coaches told her Stop saying shit. If you should have, you would. have. Yeah,
2: yeah, I love that. I love that. A cognitive distortion. I'm about to write that down. Yeah. So
1: I there are a couple directions I want to go, but I want to I want to hammer on one point about empathy versus compassion. Because one of the things I mean, you really nailed. Obviously, you've studied the difference. Being able to sit in the shit with somebody and see them is truly empathy. And we talk a lot about compassion in the coaching and guidance that we provide because it's an easier path towards empathy. It's something that we can, we can easily do or more easily do than empathy. And empathy is this word in society like that's being thrown around a lot, but the truth of it is really, really hard and you're working on it right now. Like how, how do you get to that place? Like, how do you allow yourself to be truly empathetic to say you're sitting in shit? I'm not just gonna be like, oh man, I feel really, really bad for you sitting in shit. No, I'm gonna go sit in it with you, and we're gonna get out of it together. Like, how do you do that? You like, get, what's your plan?
2: You so I, you know, Coach Luke says this to me all the time: don't try to drink the ocean in one sip, right? So you got to baby step into this, right? So for me, it started with just reminding myself to say, I see you. Even if I didn't see this person or I didn't understand what they were coming with, it's this sort of rewiring the the neurotransmitters to just go down a new path, a new way. If I see you, oh, I I hear you. I feel that, I get that. That makes sense to me. Learning some key phrases and repeating them, right? So it's just this repetition. So it's like anything you do, whether it's training, whether I'm working with a running athlete or, or my own training. Repetition obviously is, is important. The next level for me was as soon as I wanted to get up, stay. So in other words, being empathetic, I, I'll use my, sorry, love, um, using my personal relationship, right? So, like, I don't want to sit in the shit sometimes with her because the reality is sometimes it's about me. Sometimes it's about us. Sometimes it has nothing to do with us. By the way, ego gets in the way of empathy as well because we make everything about ourselves and sometimes it ain't about me. What? In fact, most of the time, it ain't about me. Yeah. It's always about um, me, bro. Yeah, well, well. <laughs> I honor, I, I honor you. I honor, <laughs> you. Um, I, but, <laughs> I
0: honor you and your big ass ego. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but what I've learned is that moment where I, I've been pushed. I feel like I've been pushed away. It's so much easier to walk away, right? So I did that for a long time. I, I could go longer, and I could go a little longer. And I could go a little longer, and then I, actually, not my wife, a close friend recently was just in a place, and it was it was nasty and it was I was involved in some ways, and some other people were involved, and it just got worse and worse and worse and worse and in every fifteen minutes i'm mean, probably every fifteen seconds my brain was like, that's it man get the, get out of there this, this bullshit and i just i just kept it was a mantra you know day okay. real, be empathetic, be authentic, be loving, be real be empathetic, be authentic, be It was like this mantra playing through my head constantly. And if you break down that, that simple formula, be real. Be your, just be honest, be yourself, be empathetic. Sit there with them. Listen, we don't do enough active listening in this world, right? So what's the biggest issue between kids and adults right now? They want to be heard and we want to be listened to. Mm-hmm. This check-in process bridges that gap. This formula creates a space where everyone can have what they want. And so empathy for me is this idea of like, as soon as it gets so bad, I want to get up, just try to stay for 30 seconds longer. Mm -hmm. You don't have to take it on. You don't have to, you don't have to, it's not yours. Don't let your ego get in the way of it. Because at the end of the day, you have no idea that sitting in that moment with that person, how that could change their life forever. Mm -hmm. Just that one moment. And it could be anything from a suicide ideation to bullying to, uh, to to depression or anxiety, you just don't know.
1: Understanding your emotions. So if if you're saying something that I vehemently disagree with, and I think whatever it is you're saying actually directly opposes my viewpoint and causes me anxiety, anger, whatever, it's important for me to go, okay, I'm angry right now. Why? Right? Like, okay, maybe it's a time to check out, walk away, and then come back when I have a chance to settle down, just to help navigate the conversation so we don't get to a point where we're yelling, screaming, and and shouting at each other. But then, I mean, you you said it, we actually just delivered a training um, on the idea of creating a safe space, right? Like, how do we do that, right? In conversation in particular, right? Not just, I mean, your safe space is it, functionally or a different purpose, but, you know, conceptually the same. And base, I just, base, I base, think base, it's base. I, right. I just love it. Like we think about it in terms of, um, you know, giving someone not assuming their intent. So if someone comes to you and says something, does something that creates an emotional reaction and you don't assume their intent, like check your ego, don't assume their intent, you know, um, engage them, right. Engage them with curiosity. Ultimately be open to listen to what they have to say. Right. And And, well, just... and yeah. Oh, go ahead. So no, go ahead. Oh, and no, just ahead. ultimately give yourselves the space to engage in a conversation in a safe way. And I just I just love the parallels to what you're saying because you know the it's just so powerful how simple some of these concepts are, but how hard they are to execute for so many people.
2: Well, I love that. And and so like look. So part of what I focused in my, in my personal development coaching and with some of my athletes before we launched DDE was this idea of being intentional. And so this idea of intentionally creating this space. So, look, on our weekly meetings, we start the meeting. And there's four executives that sit down and we start our meeting with a check-in. And we have two types of check-ins. right? We have our check-in, which you just go through the emotions. You, you list them on a scale from 1 to 10. You end with a positive affirmation. Simple. We also offer a space. When available, when necessary, for a deep dive where you can really dive into what those two or three emotions that are standing out. There's nothing more powerful to go into, say, a strategy talk or uh, a fundraising initiative we're working on or a community member that's been struggling than to know that the people you're about to engage in this strategy with, to know that maybe they're flared up with some anger right now. Maybe there's some, some pain going on in their life. So that when you go into the work that you're doing, everyone's kind of on the same plane. Mm -hmm. Our goal is to live in the middle, right? So we don't want to be too happy all the time. We don't want to be too sad all the time. We don't want to be too angry all the time. And we don't want to be, you know, too, uh, you know, fearful. And if we can just kind of find this idea of kind of finding the middle Mm -hmm. and what we've learned, you know, through thousands of these check-ins, and I've personally done this with over a thousand people, is that after going through the process, if they could go back real quick and just do a, a boom, 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 their anger has come down. Their joy maybe has come up just a little bit, just mm-hmm. a nudge, just a notch. Um, and it works amazingly well for conflict resolution in the professional world. And we're seeing it with kids as well. I mean, our focus is on kids. Mm-hmm. But we've, we've seen it in the professional world as well. When two people are just at it, try this process. It's, 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 a, it's a safe way to, to, as long as the rules are adhered to, this process allows me to practice that by just being able be compassionate and empathetic to the person that I'm in this process with. And we do do it in groups. In fact, a lot of uh, people will start a small group, and they'll get three, four, five, or six people together. And that's even more powerful because then you have a group of humans, men, women, older, younger, uh, some have similar challenges or or concerns or, or, or issues in their life that they're dealing with. Others are coming from completely different places. And to have three, five, six, seven people you when you finally come to that affirmation which i struggle with and they say yes you are or yes you can or whatever it is the first time it's a little eh. and then the second time you kind of like oh and then usually on that third time there's a science behind doing it three times it's like you start to own it you start to uh, that that to me is healthy masculinity to be able to own that you're worthy that you're capable that you're loved um i'm all about that masculinity
1: Love it. Now, I have to go to the roots, and I don't know how often you talk about this. You've touched on it. Your your dad was absent. You have um, depression and social anxiety. You've had substance abuse. You've been to AA. And before we even started recording, you talked about a major car wreck that you were in when you were 21. Now, all of that being said, like where does all of this start for you? to ultimately bring you to the point to start depression to extinction and be on this mission that you're on. like go back, way, way back. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, you know, it starts obviously um, probably I'm I'm about 10 years old. I'm living in Massachusetts. Uh, My biological father had never been in my life, Uh, but my dad, my dad, who I call my dad, my real dad, has been raising me from about the time I was two. I think is when you met my mom. Uh, great guy. just I mean, just you couldn't get a better scenario. And still, there was a major trauma that was starting to form for me because I was realizing that my brother and sister were calling me their stepbrother and sister and I didn't know what that meant. that um, he had an ex-wife. I didn't know what that meant. So all these things are happening and, and starting to unfold and I start to learn that there was another person that had, you know, had a baby with my mom, and that was my biological father. Um, you can throw on at, at age two and a half, I suffered third degree burns across my entire chest, which are now on the side as you grow, that moves. Um, I had rheumatic fever, mom took me to the doctors, doctor said he's fine, you're an over paranoid mom. I had a, a hillbilly grandmother who had amazing home remedies. One of them was fry up some onions and some Vic salve and make a big paste, and it just sucks the fever out of you. Well, when you have a screaming kid at the top of their lungs who's in pain because they're in a, a fever of 104 degrees, if you forget to drain the grease, it's gonna pull the skin off. And it was it was an accident. It was, was truly an accident, and the trauma that my poor mom went through during that process was unbelievable. And so, you know, I remember being a kid and being taken to the doctors, and back then they treated burns with A scrub brush and red iodine. Just scrub it for 10 or 15 minutes, clean it, dress it, and you do that day and day and day and day. My grandmother used to tell me that I used to yell out the window, lucky, 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 lucky. Apparently, I felt I was lucky that I, you know, survived that. Um, You throw the, you know, you throw the, the, the the sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, toxic masculinity, not even with with my parents or, 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 but my peer group. You know, the, the group that I grew up with um, and, uh, you know, being a latchkey kid. So mm-hmm. coming home to an empty house as an only child in the woods in Boston, here shitless because Friday the 13th was the big movie. So I was looking under my bed waiting for a corkscrew to come up through my chest, even though there wasn't a hot chick on top of me.
0: Um, but that's but, a, you know, that's the a necessary was, part of the formula for sure.
2: Well, I know, but I didn't know that at age yeah. 10, 11, 12. Right. Yeah. And um, and then moving back to California my freshman year right before my freshman year and having to restart with a whole new group of friends and not knowing anybody I mean there was just all this stuff right enmeshment um, with my with my mom uh, distance with 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 my dad at that point because I'm now you know look I'm seven years old I'm in I'm I'm in the garage I'm running around like a like a banshee right and so. You know hyperactivity and i bang my I, mean, I just blistered my toe toenail back blood everywhere right and The only thing i talk about this when i do my talk it's in, it's in every talk i do the only thing i remember from about age seven to ten was age five to ten was stop crying jesus christ stop crying fucked up my toe and you know and sure i probably cried a lot and i probably but but those feelings they they just weren't it wasn't him it was a whole generation of like Mom dealt with the with the empathy and the ba- boo boos and the and the and the coddling and the I don't remember hearing the words I love you from my dad until I was until he adopted me when I was 21. Talk about a cool story. He adopted me at 21 years old. Hmm. He had said, "You've always been my son." So all these traumas, big T's, little T's, attachment trauma, I had all of them. I think that kind of led to this sort of mission in life, right? So I get married after the car wreck to my first wife. And of course, that's a a major trauma. And we both survive. And we're kind of, you know, dating, we're thinking about getting married. So what do we do immediately get married? And, uh, you know, that marriage didn't work out. I obviously had some issues, clearly. Um, I have two kids, uh, a baby on the way, and a two year old. And uh, I get kicked out, rightfully so, because I was an asshole. And I jump right into a second marriage. And no no time for healing, no therapy, no no deep work, just right into a second marriage. And uh that one went up and down um for several years. We we ended up having my my, my third child, my son, and um I'll never forget it was Super Bowl two thousand six, Steelers, Seahawks had a big party, had everyone over playing poker, party goes, everyone leaves, and my ex and I sat down and we're like, it's over. And it wasn't anger; it was just like we could just tell we had just been drifting so far apart. Mm. A lot of a lot of mess and, no, and ugliness yeah. that that came up through that process. But and then I remember meeting my, my my wife and and knowing I wasn't in any place to have a relationship, you know. But knowing I didn't want to go into a rebound and and navigating, you know, her life story and my life story and eventually, you know, enter four years ago. Um, my story kind of takes a, a turn for the worse. Um, kind of doing the same old thing, same old pattern, masculinity, verbal abuse. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was mean. I was a mean person sometimes. And, um, you know, she finally said enough. And uh, I thought it would be a great idea. shows you how freaking stupid we can be. I thought it would be a great idea to go hunting with my buddy over Thanksgiving. Good time. Over the actual Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah. It's a great time to hunt, but not a great time to leave your family. Right. And we're in Texas and we have no family. Philadelphia, California, right? So we have no family. But I think it's great. I got a three or four year old daughter. I leave my wife and daughter. I go hunting. And I literally think I'm gonna come home and we're gonna reconnect. We're gonna we're just gonna be so happy. We didn't. And uh, I ended up in an apartment. Um, we separated. She wanted to to move on. Didn't want to build another company. And our core value was to find a, a an organization, a nonprofit, that was focused on depression and anxiety and, and help give a proceeds of some of the money that we we earned to that organization. And we just couldn't there's Nami and there's, there's a lot of good mind mind up. Goldie Hawn, is a great organization. And uh so three men, 40, 30, 20s, were sitting around a campfire and we were checking in. And I'll never forget John Javert, a mentor of mine, said to me, he if you would have told me 10 years ago I'd sit around a campfire with three grown men and talk about how I am feeling, I would have said you are fucking crazy. There's no way I would do that. But here we are. And he said to me, he was helping me decide what I wanted to do next. He said, what is your absurd goal? I mean, what's the absurd goal? Forget that you can obtain it. What's the absurd goal? And it was just like this. It was, I want to bring depression to extinction. That was it. We got a whiteboard out in the middle of We were sitting out of my lake house, and we got the whiteboard out. And we got, three in the morning and we wrote Depression to Extinction, D to Eat. We came up with what our, our kind of our mission was gonna be and like twelve days later we were filing for a five oh one C three. We closed down the for profit and we we started running with it. I don't know how to run a non profit. I don't even you know, but we just we went for it.
1: Where did where did the like based on your background, your experience, like where did the be real, system and the check-in system? Where did that all come from?
2: Um, just a lot of a lot of uh, what I learned in AA, what I learned at the Meadows, uh, Power of Now. Um, I'm, I'm working on another book called Deep Work, amazing book uh, book by uh, Cal Newport. Um, therapy. I, I just took bits and pieces of of what was working for me, and started putting it to paper. So we had 12 emotions, we had eight emotions, we had six emotions. I mean, we, we had a, a lot of different variations for, at first. And we, we realized that these kind of 10 core emotions, we all feel at some, at some level at some point, right? And so that kind of became the core 10, right? And then this Be Real formula, um, one of our uh, board members had said, why don't we, you know, why don't we put like a social media campaign out there? I, I wanted to use social media as a platform for good, not for bad. So a way to say, let's do the check-in on Facebook Live, on our feed, and let our whole world know we're dealing with anger, we're dealing with fear, we're, we're dealing with depression. And thousands of people did it. We, we couldn't track it all because you can't track everybody on Facebook if you're not friends with them. Mm-hmm. And it was called the Be Real Challenge. And my board members said, well, why don't you just you know, call it Be Real, check-in. And I said, I love that. And then it just hit me, be respectful, be empathetic, be authentic, and be loving. And that was the space we were trying to create so it became the formula, and the check-in became the actual process we used for for doing that that uh, that check-in.
1: Obviously, you had a lot of help to, to navigate the trauma that you felt to come out in a place. And it sounds like there are different components of evolution. Like you continue to try to be better along this journey, right? Um, but what was that? What was that work like? We we, often, we talk a lot about mental health. It's it's funny when we set out to do this. Um, race was the primary uh, driver of conversation and I think probably 50% of our content is now and will be uh, mental health especially come mental health month um, so it's always something I we like to harness like what was that like for you because it's different for everybody and I think there's always one person who can learn from someone's story in coming from being a jerk um, alcoholic substance abuse you know all of the things that you just highlighted to someone who just deeply cares about helping other people get through that too like and you did it in um i mean in a relatively short period of time compared to the the journey it takes for a lot of people right
2: yeah yeah i think it's um i would just i would probably uh just tweak and pivot that statement to doing it not did okay. it okay so it's an ongoing it's an ongoing journey, right? So once you make a choice, for me, my experience thus far is I made a choice to change, to, to literally change. I wanted to change. I know, and I believe. Look, so we're primal, right? We're, we we want to be in connection with other people. I mean, that's how we were designed. And so to isolate from so many people, especially your person, your your wife, your spouse, your lover, your your best friend, whoever it might be, to isolate from that person. Only just brings up more pain, and then it triggers the shame and it triggers the anger, and and so I wanted to get out of that toxic cycle, and so it started with journaling for me. Journaling, and I mean, a guy journaling when I was growing up, I would have had my ass kicked, right? I mean, it would have been like, it would have been a field day for me. Um, It's probably been the hardest and most powerful thing I've done uh, to to write my emotions. And here's a great exercise for anyone who's listening: when you're having a really hard time kind of getting your words out, if you're right-handed, take your pen, put it in your left hand, and time yourself for five minutes and try to write whatever you're thinking. Because what happens is you're going to use a different part of your brain, you're crossing over, and it really gets gets you focused. Those those transmitters are just firing like, whoa, 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 I have to write this perfect. Don't worry about whether you can read it or not. It's a great exercise when you're journaling. If you're stuck, you just don't know what to write or or what you're writing, you might feel a little about. Switch it you to your left hand or if you're left-handed. Switch it to your right hand if you're ambidextrous. I don't tell you. <laughs> right with your toes. But but, Take your but but switch but switch you know switch it up and 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 so journaling was kind of the the, the launching point right mm. and then again so it, it's a combination of things it's it's talk therapy uh, that's not available to everybody um, some people can't afford it some people can't get access to it um, it's connecting with somebody. Uh, it's our community, right? So one of the things we value in our community is that in our community, people lift each other up. In fact, when we built the community, we invited everybody. We had, you know, I don't know, 2,000 people that I just invited everyone. Facebook blocked me four times. Then it kept inviting everyone I knew into into my group. But eventually it weeded itself out. And now the people are creating the content in that community. They're there for each other. They're lifting each other up. Um, There's no greater gift when when you're on a mission to, to end the stigma to, to help people connect and, and communicate with their emotions themselves and others than to go on one afternoon and see, you know, X, Y, and Z pop up and 13 people comment, Hey, I'm here. If you want to, if you want to check in, Hey, did you, did you do your book today? Have you thought about going out for a walk? I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. So I think it's, it's, and then you heard me say it earlier. I think it was in the, in the the fast nine that we did the rapid fire book. I believe in a mantra called Relentless Forward Progress. For us ultra marathoners out there, it's just a way of training, right? You just it's gonna be messy, it's gonna be like it's gonna be it's gonna be tough, you're gonna hit super, super, super lows and super, super, super highs. I've taken that and I've used that as my mantra for life because it's I think life's a lot like an ultra marathon. It doesn't really matter when you finish, just finish. And and I don't really wanna get to the finish line in life yet, because the finish line is death. So for me, I want to keep enjoying the journey. I want to stop and, and connect with people along the way. If I just keep putting one step in front of the other, sometimes it's tiny little micro steps. But as long as I'm moving forward relentlessly, um, I think my journey is, is, is exactly where it do, needs to be right now. Do you
1: have micro steps? Like, the energy you bring and the way you've got. like, it doesn't well, seem
2: to me like you have a micro Well, let's
1: step. talk about
0: ultra marathons yeah. for that question. So ultra, what is that? 50, 100 miles? What's the... What's the Delimiter for ultra.
2: So uh, anything uh, 50 kilometers or more. 50 km. So 32. Kilometers. Yeah, that's how ultras are. So it's 32.4 or 32.8 miles. I don't oh, remember yeah. the exact math. Um. So, my my so I, so I find running right. So I bring movement in as one of the first holistic ways. Sidebar. I leave you know the meadows and the first thing they want me to do is see a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist wants to put me on meds this is not a great idea to give a prescription pill person meds. They want to give me Adderall. That's okay. great to snort. They want to give me, you know, Wellbutrin and, and, you know, Xanax. And I'm just thinking, I remember telling this guy, like, I'm a, I like, I like to take pills of booze. So and I just, this isn't a good idea. So I went into the top therapy instead. but, but my point is I found movement as the first way my, my therapist said, Hey, go out and move. So I paddleboarded and I, I, I hate running, by the way. It's kind of funny because I run for a living, kind of now. But um, I want to write a book. I, I want to the...
0: write a book called "I'm a Runner" and I hate running.
2: Yeah. Well, I will read that book. <laughs> we can co-author. We can it.
0: co-author it. Yeah. I,
2: I, I hate the first three miles and I hate the last three miles, whether it's a ten-mile run or a thirty-mile run or a hundred-mile run. But but um, I found running, and so I had this goal. I wanted to run a 5K in all 50 states before I turned 50. That was my goal. And so I did like twelve states. I did Arkansas. I took my son. He did that one with me. His first five K ever. And all of a sudden, I got a coach, and I, you know, and I, I was getting my running coach certification. All of a sudden, I started winning some races. I started getting actually pretty good, you know, my age group. But but it was still it was it was it was kind of cool. And I watched this documentary about Badwater, you know, one of the hardest races in the world. You run from the, the Death Valley Basin to Mount Whitney, 135 miles in the summer. The hottest day of the year. And, you know, David Doggins and these guys have all run this, you know, Dean Carnassus and these these legends that I've been just kind of idolizing. Um, I watch this documentary and I, I try to apply. And they're like, well, you can't get in. You, you've got to run at least 100 miles or you've got to do all these things. So I find this race called the Hurt 100, the hardest race in the world, apparently. And it's, it's 100 miles in Hawaii uh, on five 20-mile loops that climb 26,000 feet throughout the entire race on single track that has 100-foot cliffs on the side of you. And it's deemed the – some people deem it the hardest race in the world right now.
1: What what, island? And
2: getting in uh, the uh, island of Oahu, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's right overlooking Honolulu. It's uh, called the Tantalus Trail. It's right there. It's, It's amazing. There's nothing like it in the world, right? And so I put my name in the lottery, and I called my coach, and I said, hey, coach, uh, I've decided I want to move from 5Ks to ultra marathons. And he's like, Coach Blue Ben and I'm great coach, Nike coach, has his own coaching business. Shameless plug, Coach Blue, you're awesome. And he says to me, he goes, well, JJ, that's a, that's a big jump from you know 5K to 50K. And I said, no, 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 I want to do 100. And he goes, oh, 100K? This is a whole new monster. He said, no, I want to do the Hurt 100. I just signed up for it. I'm in the lottery. I'll, I'll know if I get it in a couple of weeks. And he goes, <laughs> Okay, if you you want me to train you from a 5K to a 100-miler, I need you to go run 30 miles. The next 24 hours, you go run 30 miles. You you show me. I don't care if you run it, walk it, crawl it. You go do it, and I'll train Micro you. Micro steps. I hung up. I kissed my kissed, kissed my wife goodbye. I put on running shoes. I had, like, Under Armour shoes that were with me at the time. And uh, I took off, like, 2 in the afternoon. It's 1040 at night. I'm at, like, mile 44, 45. <laughs> And I'm, I'm ruined. I have had no food plan, no nutrition plan, no hydration plan. It's summer in in Austin, Texas. Wow. And I'm dead. I'm I'm dead, right? And my wife is like, "You're okay out there." I just ran eight mile loops in my neighborhood, right? I figured it'd be kind of like the race. I come back and it's like 10:40, and I jump in my jeep. I take a shower. I jump in my jeep. I call my coach and I say, "Coach, I didn't get 50 miles in, but I got 44 in. I'll finish the other six miles when I get. Oh no, it was 34. I was trying to do 40." and uh, i said i'll get the other four miles in but i'm so fucking hungry i'm going to taco bell and he just goes "Dude, I told you to do you know 23 like i just wanted you to go out like you didn't need to do that many miles i said i know but i knew if i did that many miles you'd take me serious so i went to taco bell ate like seven macho grande combo whatever's four Mexican pizzas three large cokes went back finished the last four miles, I walked because so I was exhausted. My feet had oh, blisters. Yeah. yeah. I mean blood blisters. I lost a toenail. And uh I that, that launched my ultra marathon career. I got into the race as a rookie. Um and right before the race I was overtraining. So I don't do microseps to answer your <laughs> question. Um I uh no. I was wearing a, I was wearing a sixty pound weight vest and I was doing sprint pill repeats for fourteen miles. And um I ended up getting shin splints and kept running, uh, finished uh, my 30 miles. My only 30-mile run of the training loop, and about mile 26, I'm coming in to our house and kind of coming down the hill to our house, and uh, my wife's like, what's wrong with you? My, my legs are on fire. I'm like, my legs, I can't feel my shins. I can't feel my shins. She's like, stop running. I'm like, no, mental toughness. I'm thinking Goggins. Put it in the cookie jar. Put it in the cookie jar. By the way, y'all, there's a difference between mental toughness yeah. and fucking stupidity. Yeah. I was stupid. Yes, and so, and so, anyways, I finished it. I ended up getting a tibial stress fracture. I only have nine weeks till the race. So I met this amazing organization called Elliptigo. Lift to Go. Uh, they sponsored me. They gave me a bike. I was able to train on this machine out in the open. Um, so no real running training. I get to the starting line of the Hurt 100. I'm in relatively decent shape, not ready to do the climbing, not ready to do the race. On mile 20, coming down, uh, it's called Pipes, the first loop. I slipped in a rock, and my knee went this way, my leg went that way, so I got an MCL sprain and I tore my meniscus. Uh, we also had a ballistic missile threat in the first eight miles. Oh, that was for when real? The ballistic ballistic no Missile kidding. threat hit Hawaii. So, oh. so that happened. A little mental fortitude there.
0: That's at mile twenty. 40- so that's like the first loop.
2: Yeah, yeah. The missile hey. threat's at like mile eight. First loop is when I fall. Um, I end up going forty-seven more miles to finish what they call the fun run on a bad knee no headlamp, nothing went right. And uh, I finished the the fun run, and I remember sitting there crying. I don't know if it was joy, pain, uh, embarrassment, maybe a little bit of everything. My whole family was there. My kids all came. My mom came. My aunt flew out. My wife was my crew chief, and Coach Luke was there with me, and Coach Blue was with me. And I just remembered feeling like life is like an ultramarathon. There's a lot of lows, and there's a lot of highs you got to just keep moving forward and relentless forward progress became so, my mantra for life
0: so we like to ask for all of our guests what what would you leave as a, as a parting thought to anybody listening
2: yeah i mean I, I think it's just at at this stage of my journey my experience has been that um you know just to to give yourself 10 minutes a day i know it sounds so simple but to give yourself 10 minutes a day i mean we're all worth 10 minutes a day and, I mean, if I look at my day, I look at social media, or I look at, you know, mindless conversations or fussing around with bullshit that that isn't all that important. You deserve 10 minutes a day. And, and I tell people all the time, like, for me, I know that if 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 I'm gentle with myself, it allows me to be gentle with others. So give yourself 10 minutes a day. Get out and move. Net with people. And, uh, and, just, and, and just give yourself that, that 10 minutes.